There is Mr. Daly in the flesh. <laughs> How are you? Good, thank you. I see I could see you all along. Well, you know, I uh, I often say, you know, I've got a face for podcasts. So, <laughs> but you know, if people can put up with it, then uh, then I'll uh, I uh, I like to uh, I like to use video on all these Zoom and Teams calls because I think it conveys something more than uh, than just the audio. You know, body language and communication is about eighty five percent body language. So, uh, I think that's. Uh, pretty poignant for even safety so uh, Mallory will keep watching to see uh, when Steve arrives oh, oh there he is he's signing in right now he just texted me so we'll um, we'll give him another 30 seconds and then we'll uh, we'll dive straight in that's a beautiful office you have there in St. John New Brunswick Mike well thank you Don it's uh, just a little den here in our condo we're looking right out of the harbor oh nice there's um there's a seafood place there that I, uh, when I've been at Irving, that I like to go. I think it's right on the right on the harbor. Granians, I think it's called. Uh, Granians, yeah, we were there Grannons. the other night actually. Yeah, that, yeah, that is my favorite place on the planet to eat lobster. Um, well, they, they they have I don't know if they have it now, but they had a dish years ago called the lazy lobster, and uh, you you know they would basically declaw two full lobsters and bring it out to you from the kitchen steaming hot and it was like the easiest lobster meal you'd ever have in your life and you didn't have to work for it so um just the next time <laughs> yeah just add butter exactly yeah uh, so yeah you bet it's not it's not cheap but they make it easy for you so yeah. well you know you know that's that, that's the thing when you uh, if you make it easy and it's valuable then you know it's worth paying for right you bet Well, I think we're going to dive straight in. Uh, we'll, you know, Steve can jump into the conversation, and Mallory will let him in as soon as he uh, arrives. And I'll do uh, an impromptu introduction of Steve uh, as soon as he gets in the room. So, welcome everyone to uh, this episode of the Industrial Innovators Podcast, and this is a special edition, specifically an industry town hall. Uh, on safety culture. And uh, the reason that we put this together is we really just wanted to start to highlight an emphasis on safety, particularly in the Canadian industrial market, and start in this series to share wisdom from safety leaders. Uh, in other series we're going to do as part of this safety series, we're going to bring in some experts on on uh, culture design and on behavior design from a scientific standpoint. Uh, and uh, and rounded out in our third series with um, with some practical applications of things that people can do to um, to really drive safety performance, to create strong cultures, and to uh, to never hurt anybody again. Um, I'm the host, Don Cooper, and uh, I'm passionate about this. I've been passionate about safety since I was a young university student in my on my first industrial job 30 years ago. And I instantly realized that there is a difference between safety rules and safety programs and safety culture. And I'm going to share my insights on how I experienced that even at 20 years old, um, 30 years ago. Uh, but, you know, this this conversation is about our panelists. And I want to take a moment to introduce each uh, each of these uh, these awesome gentlemen. Uh, we've got Mr. Mike Daly. 
Mike uh, was, he's a 40-year veteran in the industrial space, according to what he told me a few minutes ago, um, give or take five or ten years probably. And um, Mike uh, was the uh, corporate uh, vice president of health and safety for Syncrude Canada before he transitioned um, from an owner's organization into a consulting and a coaching organization. And he's now uh, vice president of consulting with the Sacred Cow Company. Um, Steve Cathry, welcome, Steve. Steve Cathry is uh, another uh, longtime veteran and gentleman that I've known for a lot of years. He's the turnaround director for Worley. And uh, I'll give each of you a, a few moments to uh, tell a little bit about your stories. And finally, I've got Tyler Douglas. And Tyler is uh, the quality and health and safety leader in my business, Innovator Industrial. And so what I hope in this conversation we're going to get is the perspective of someone who comes from an owner's point of view and an outside consulting point of view, the point of view of a leader of uh, safety and performance with a prime general contractor, and and a frontline perspective with a subcontractor like our business. And I think those unique perspectives can give us all some some really uh, awesome ideas about uh, how safety can be applied from a culture standpoint at each of those levels, because our perspective is that in order for there to be a strong safety culture, a created culture, it needs to be supported and believed in at all levels of that engagement. The workers are on the front line um, and they are working in a facility for prime contractors and for subcontractors. And if there's any misalignment in terms of values and beliefs and behavioral norms, then that's when (laughs) cultures can go awry. Mike, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about you and your background? Hey, thanks, Don, and uh, good afternoon. Hey, Steve. Hi, Tyler. Uh, first of all, Don, I, I'm, I'm really hoping that uh, between Tyler and Steve, they're going to bring the wisdom part of what you're looking for. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a uh, subject matter expert on anything that you've uh, talked about up to this point. Uh, practitioner. My background's refinery operations, so uh, I started at Irving Refining back in the 70s, uh, Went out to uh, Syncrude, Northern Alberta, like a lot of people, for a couple of years, and it was good for me and good for my family. And uh, uh, topped up my career there and retired uh, from Syncrude in 2016. Uh, headquarters is now in Edmonton, and uh, do a little bit of contracting work. I'm not quite uh, comfortable using the word consultant, but uh, I do some contract work, and uh, mostly focused on. Uh, Leadership coaching, uh, field coaching at a number of uh, operating sites and with a couple of uh, third-party service providers in a couple of different provinces and uh, also do some organizational uh, risk assessments uh, working with folks. And uh, it's just been great. It uh, keeps me young in between traveling. And I wish I could say I was always as passionate as you were, Don. I was uh, tended to be a high-risk guy in my career. And if somebody followed me around, I'm probably still high-risk uh, certain activities, but I catch myself or I'm open to feedback. But certainly, uh, over the last 20 years, I've had a shift quickly as my, uh, as, uh, my children, independents have entered the industry. It's, it's caused me to, uh, have a different view of things. And certainly, uh, like I said I started in operations, but about half of my career was on the maintenance and turnaround side, probably in turnaround more so than ever. And I, uh, gained a lot of respect for, uh, tradespeople, particularly people working in transient situations and in terms of how they get set up for success. They're, uh, they're not sleeping in their own bed every night. And uh, they get a lot of stuff coming at them. And as I look back now, I can see a lot of opportunities where uh, uh, they weren't set up for success from the owner's perspective. 
at even from some of the supplier perspectives. So that's uh, that's kind of what turns my crank these days to uh, keeps me young and get to hang out with young, smart guys like yourself. So thanks for the opportunity. I don't know about how young or smart I am, but um, I appreciate the comment. I think Tyler is the young, smart, good-looking one in the group. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Mr. Cathery, nice to see you, pal. Why don't we tell uh, the audience a little bit about you and your background and uh, and your uh, your value system? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Stephen Cathery, I'm the turnaround director for uh, Warley. Uh, nice to see everyone on this call. Nice to see you, Mike. I haven't seen you in a while there, so uh, great to be on a call with you talking about safety. It's uh, certainly something that uh, we've all been working uh, diligently and as hard as we can uh, to uh, affect culture and, and different things along the way. And I think there's been a lot of ebbs and flows uh, in that process, as we've all probably seen, uh, you know, uh, affecting our projects. Uh, my background, I guess, uh, started, uh, well, 35 years ago, basically as a tradesperson. Uh, I've worked, uh, both in the industrial and commercial, uh, sectors of the business as a fire protection installer, as well as a pipe fitter, steam fitter. Uh, so I do have, uh, quite a knowledge around, uh, around the workings in the field. Uh, as well as I've been a supervisor for a person, uh, superintendent, uh, as well as a turnaround manager. Uh, right now, my remit uh, revolves around our North American union business, uh, which is inclusive of 17, I think 18 sites now, uh, of which we do turnaround work uh, at most of them. Uh, so very busy, uh, very busy and, and a lot of risk involved in a lot of that. Uh, over the years, I've also had, uh, experiences at dealing with different companies. So, you know, I, I was employed with, uh, the former company Jacobs, uh, for many years. Uh, we got sold to another company, Warley. Uh, three years ago, so that certainly has been a transition time. Um, you know, I, I've gained a lot of experience through both the companies, uh, and there certainly are differing perspectives uh, around what builds culture. I think uh, part of it, too, is in the turnaround business, uh, the limited time to build culture. Uh when, as Mike said, we talk about a transient workforce, uh, are certainly things that I look at closely on, on how we affect culture. And, and, you know, the easiest answer is to say, well, you know, what Don said is we start with leaders, uh, and it conveys its message down through, uh, through the ranks down, down to the workforce itself. Uh, you know, there's been some interesting, uh, things over the last couple of years that, that have affected that and one of which is COVID, uh, and the inability for leaders to be on sites and get in front of people. And I think, uh, that's something, uh, to look at closely is what, you know, how are we engaging, uh, from a leadership, uh, perspective down to the craft, uh, and through our organization and, and, you know, how are we showing that? Uh, and 
instilling that. And then with the timelines involved in turnaround work, uh, it, it's a difficult, uh, you know, there, there, there's certainly a difficulty in engaging culture in a short period of time. Uh, you know, we find our maintenance operations, which, which are steady state, which are year round folks that work on a site, uh, the culture, uh, becomes embedded. Uh, and, you know, you look at ways that using that embedded culture for the new folks that come in on a short term basis, that, that, that's part of it. Uh, so I, I have an interesting perspective as well because I also have the ability to look at all our client sites. Uh, and there are certainly a lot of differences, uh, in operations dependent on where you are and the culture that exists at sites. Uh, and so that to me is another key consideration is, you know, the partnership with owners and, and, and building culture is imperative to, to make that happen. And, and it's, you know, sometimes it's difficult conversations, uh, when we see that the culture, uh, it isn't where we believe it should be. Uh, you know, I'm a lot like Mike as well, where I came out of the field. Uh, so, you know, I thank Jacobs for instilling, uh, a lot of things in me that I learned over the years, uh, because I certainly didn't start out that way. Uh, so, and to me, Mike, Mike said a, a really important point is that, you know, my family is also involved in, in the trades. Uh, and I have had my family sitting, uh, in the lunchroom, uh, while we're giving discussions, uh, and some pretty hard discussions. Uh, you know, over the years, we've seen fatalities and, and other things that have gone on. Uh, and so the connection to your heart and to your family, I think, is something that is important in the culture aspect of it as well. Uh, and if somehow, uh, we get to where we're really putting forth, uh, efforts into a family concept. Uh, you think of it a lot differently if it's your family. Uh, you would not send your child out onto the street without a helmet riding their bike. Uh, you know, there's certain things I, I think, and, and it certainly changed my aspect over the years. Uh, when I have family sitting and then not just that, but the long-term relationships that you see where you see, um, a lot of people come back year after year to the same turnarounds. Uh, and they're also family, uh, because there's brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, uh, kids and fathers, uh, working on these jobs. And so, you know, if we can capture that concept, uh, I think is important as well. I could go on and on, but that's what I got for you now. <laughs> no, that's great, Steve. You know, what, what's interesting is two, two things that I'll share. One is, um, from a family point of view, I spent half of my career in the corporate world of the specialty services space working for guys like you, right, as a sub. Um, and, but I've spent the last half of my career as an entrepreneur and, uh, with all of those people, you know, all of my team working for me and, uh, and the buck stops with me. And it, uh, but in both cases, I think the thing that struck me, culture comes from values. 
and 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 you, if you want to create a strong culture, it's got to be based in your values. And you, you mentioned family. My son works in my business, and he he's actually uh, listening in as one of the attendees on this webinar right now. The the heightened level of scrutiny that I had the first time I sent him out uh, as a pipe fitter apprentice was, and 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 literally I wasn't on the job. I was handing him to other. Uh, construction managers and superintendents who I trusted, not just to look after my business, but to look after my boy. That was um, that was a really interesting feeling that I hadn't experienced prior to that. I, I certainly had it for all of my employees, for, you know, over my whole career. But you know, in terms of culture, you know, we, you know, here is here is our core values as a business, and our number one core value is family first. And and I think I think you've got to have a value system if you're going to have a culture that's going to protect your people, right? I think that's key. I think your message there about whether it's your family, I think you need to think about your people like family because they all have families. They got to go home to their kids, their wives, their parents, and uh, I think that's such an important aspect of driving culture is having a value system about caring for your people genuinely. I think that that was bang on the mark, Steve. Whether or not it's your kid or someone else's kid, it's someone's kid, right? Tyler, you got to, you know, you you are the you're the young guy on this call, and uh, <laughs> why don't you tell us about your journey through uh, safety? Because you've chosen to be a safety professional, and uh, tell us about you and and your journey and and your belief system around safety and culture. Yeah, first off, I, I just want to say uh, it's great to meet both uh, both you guys, Mike and, and Stephen. Looking forward to to some dialogue here and, and learning from some of your uh, past experiences. So I took a, a bit of a unique uh, road into the health and safety realm um, in that uh, I'm a trained firefighter paramedic, and, and that's actually how I got into the oil industry initially. So my mindset coming in as a you know, 20, 21-year-old kid, was uh, was on a, a more reactive basis, and uh, it just came to a, a realization. Um, you know, working a whole bunch of different jobs, I've been everywhere from, uh, you know, remote drilling and uh, and service rigs, new construction, turnarounds, pipeline, um, basically uh, every upstream downstream service within uh, within industry uh, over the past 12 years. And um, initially what I had realized is a lot of what uh, the calls that I was responding to, the emergencies that, that we were attending to, were entirely preventable, for one. Um, but secondarily, uh, all it really took was a little bit of training and, and uh, a cultural shift. You know, it's, uh, it's a mindset more than anything to, to make sure that uh, you're taking the appropriate steps and uh, following uh, procedures, policies. Uh, to a T as opposed to taking shortcuts. And, and so, um, uh, like I said, uh, my mindset's just a little bit different because I, I kind of work backwards, uh, you know, from, from worst case scenario to, to how to avoid as opposed to, you know, setting up from, from step one to, to avoid the, the incident or the event. Um, uh, to Stephen's point, uh, the, you know, one, one thing that I've, I've tried to do, uh, I've bounced around, uh, to a, few different companies, especially during my, my turnaround um, life cycle. Uh, so bounced to, to quite a few different sites, quite a few different coveralls. Uh, and uh, to Stephen's point, I, I've always tried to take some of the positives um, from from different sites and, and different companies and, and even, you know, as specific as a, a unique crew. Um, 
you know, some things that I found a ton of value in uh, referencing back to, to family first is uh, creating a little pocket guide. I, I think that's one of the most useful tools, um, you know, when, when guys are kind of towing the line and, and taking on a little bit more risk than they should. Um, something as simple as, as a photo of your family or, or your dog or, or whatever the case may be, something you hold close, you know, as you're pulling out measurements or, or a drawing out of your pocket and, and that's kind of intertwined. You know, it just gives you that that uh, that little mindset reset. Um, and, uh, you know, I just wanted to touch upon uh, Mike's comment about uh, having a, a bit of a high risk um, career path and, and some of the, the choice making as, as a, a younger individual. And, um, you know, there there is uh, obviously we're working a high high risk industry. Um, you know, there's there's uh, there's no debating that. Um, and, and I'm sure from an outsider perspective, a lot of the things I do in, in my life, I like fast cars, I like cliff jumping, I, you know, all, all that fun adrenaline seeking stuff. Um, but the difference between being high risk is, is a, a calculated risk. And, uh, you know, you can have two and they, they coincide very well together. Um, but, uh, the calculation is, is the key and, and implementing the controls. Um, you know, my experience in, in the health and safety realm has, has mostly been around uh, face-to-face engagement, um, you know, being on the front line with the guys, uh, you know, uh, mostly field experience. I'm, I'm fairly new to, to more of a, an administrative office side of, uh, of the world. But, um, yeah, I'm just happy to be here to, to impart, uh, uh, like I said, a unique perspective um, from, uh, from the emergency services side of the world. Awesome. Thanks, Tyler. Uh- for me, guys, um, I, I got into this space totally by accident. Um, I was in university, and I was planning to be a lawyer, of all things, believe it or not. And, and to pay for that, I needed to get a job, and I got a job on the end of a hydraulic torque wrench. As a 19-year-old kid who was trying to pay for tuition, um, and uh, one of my first journeys uh, as uh, when I was not quite a little bit, I think I was 20 at this time when I got this first, you know, real aha about safety culture and the difference between rules and culture. I was on a job in uh, northern British Columbia, the demolition of a gas plant, working uh, for a subcontractor. We were doing all of the um, scaffolding asbestos removal uh, work while they were tearing down this gas plant and working for a prime contractor, and I won't name any of them to uh, protect the innocent. Um, But what I, you know, not knowing what I didn't know, I mean, it was really interesting. I was on the, I think I was, I I got into the industry on the tail end of what were uh, a a much more higher risk tolerance in our industry, because on that one job, uh, I got to see the, you know, for the first and only time in my life, I got to see an iron worker riding the ball on a crane. Uh, not a lot of people have seen that in the last 10, 15, 20 years, I would suspect. Um, I, uh, I was on that job and we, uh, we still had safety belts and they were just introducing, uh, you know, proper four, you know, five point harness, uh, systems, but they didn't have, um, uh, lanyards. It was just a hard lanyard. Uh, so those, those were a couple of the things that I saw, you know, in the first months of, of my introduction into this space. But I was a university student, and before I was going to go to law school, I had to do all of these psychology and and uh, sociology courses, all about human behavior, and I found it interesting, but it, it was all going towards this law degree. 
And so I, I had an interest in human behavior because of that. And I remember being in this plant and I was up about three pipe uh, decks uh, stripping asbestos. And as we would strip the asbestos, the iron workers and the pipe fitters were, were cutting it and removing all this material as part of the demolition. And, you know, for days, I would see metal flying and stuff being dropped to the ground and people would flame cut a piece of pipe and drop it, you know, 20, 30 feet down to the ground to try to, you know, what I thought was normal rip and tear demolition work. But I was high enough up that I could see the site offices. And I remember this moment where I saw this whole group of white hard hats with yellow vests leaving the site, site offices. And then I noticed whistling. And I looked around and all the behavior changed. All of a sudden they were using taglines and they were not all, all of their, all of their actions totally transformed. And in that moment I realized, hmm, there's a difference between how stuff gets done in that culture and what the rules are supposed to be. And I, and I instantly realized culture isn't what is written down. It's what people do. And it's what people do when no one's looking. And so it was in that moment that I decided I got to dive more into this. And I, I started down the path of becoming a construction safety officer because I wanted to learn more about safety. And I never became a safety professional at full time, but I used that background to kind of guide my thinking as a supervisor, as a manager over the years. And I think it, it, uh, it always intrigues me that, you know, Safety is about behavior. It's about human behavior, and it's about values and beliefs. So that's uh, you know that's kind of where we all are, guys. And I you know, I think we all have very unique perspectives on this, and I think every one of us has seen good, bad, and ugly in this industry. Hopefully, we're trending more and more towards better and better performance and progress. So on that note, you know, I I, I initiated this this conversation because with the energy crisis that's going on in North America right now something really caught my attention. And that was in the last couple of months, there's been two major refinery explosions, one in Eastern Canada, where eight people were badly burned. One of those people is a colleague of mine who uh, is in the same industrial space. He's a longtime veteran of the leak repair industry. I have no idea of the nature of what he was doing when that explosion happened, but I do know he's in the hospital and he's got bad burns. So this is real close to uh, to me and real close to a lot of the people in our industrial specialty and here in Canada. And then there was another, a couple of weeks later, there was a major explosion at a refinery in Ohio that is now owned by Canadian energy companies. And uh, two people were burned uh, in that explosion and killed. And of course, we know about the rash of fatalities that has led to uh, a lot of change in, in the oil sands uh, in recent months. And so I guess my question, you know, to start the conversation, to dive in beyond who we are is, where's our industry at in terms of reaching zero? Like, what is the journey from your perspectives? Mike. Uh, great question. Actually, it's great listening to you guys. Uh, already covered quite a bit of material there, which is, is good. I should have been uh, writing that down, but uh, it's a great, it's a great question. And uh I think my answer is probably going to be all over the map. I think that's where the results are. The results are all over the map. And kind of left me with a couple of thoughts, uh, maybe more questions than thoughts. And certainly there's a number of slogans out there which are good, like journey to zero, road to zero, zero whatever. And uh, it's a great aspirational target. 
and then I applaud organizations that are putting that vision out in front of people. I think, unfortunately, uh, the intellectual understanding that goes with that, with, with good old plain old-fashioned leaders like myself, uh, a lot of us, when it got rolled out in different organizations, weren't equipped to really understand what it meant. What did it, what did it mean for us as a leader? And, uh, that, you know, it's much more than putting up banners and posters and giving people high fives when they say, oh, we've gone 15 days, they're hurting anybody. And, and I would assert that, uh, organizations, uh, that still talk about how many days they've gone without an injury are probably doomed to failure because they're really focusing on the lagging indicators, you know. And certainly they need to celebrate those milestones. But, uh, the real question is, are they talking about the presence of the controls, like what, what's keeping them safe? Or are they only talking about the fact that they went another day without hurting somebody? So maybe we'll, we'll talk about that maybe a bit more when we talk about culture. But I think, uh, from my perspective on the, on the road to zero, I think, uh, that old cliche about, uh, it's about the journey and not the destination. I think that's categorically, uh, probably the only way to ultimately achieve the zero vision for a sustainable period of time. And then the other question is, uh, would be, uh, how do you know when you arrived and do you really ever arrive is probably the other question. And if, and if nobody got hurt yesterday, does that mean you're at zero injuries? Cause nobody got, nobody went to the hospital yesterday. So I think it opens up lots of conversations and lots of questions. I think unfortunately, uh, a lot of the conversations are missing and they don't happen. Even, even the conversation, uh, and I've seen some opportunity. I've seen some companies that do this actually when nobody did get hurt yesterday at the lineup meeting the next day, they'll say, Hey, nobody got hurt yesterday, guys. Tell us what we did. What, why did, why did, why did we send nobody to the hospital? Yesterday? So it's just another way to kind of keep the conversation alive. The other, uh, the other perspective that I've observed, and I don't know if you folks have seen the same thing, but certainly, uh, the number of minor injuries has re- been reduced significantly over the last 10 years. And, and there's a number of, uh, very mature organizations that have very advanced systems and good people and whatnot, but, uh, they seem to go for months, like quarters without, without no near misses, without any first aids. And all of a sudden, wham, they get like uh, two medical treatments or medical treatment and a lost time injury in the span of three days. And uh, while the world has changed since some of those benchmark studies were done going back 50, 60, 80 years ago with the old pyramid, it is still hard to fathom how people could work safely all along and then all of a sudden have a couple of events happen. And, uh, you know, I, I would offer up that certainly training, PP, procedures, rules, we've all got a lot better over the years. But... uh I personally believe, uh, while there's always been a lot of under, I should say, well, there's always been some degree of under-reporting in different organizations. I honestly believe there's a fair amount of under-reporting that goes on today, just from my own experiences. And, uh, I think there's a number of things conspire against that. And one of them might conspire is, is the road to zero. Like nobody wants to be the person that causes their boss's scorecard to go red or be the reason why if you're a third party provider, why well, you might get thrown off site or whatever whatever else might happen to people from an unintended consequence. But I think uh, we certainly, about 15 years ago, we, we saw a step change in reporting for first stage for sure. When uh, A&D testing went universal, just a lot of people would put their finger in their pocket, let it clot over and go home that night and flush it out. Right? And I shouldn't say a lot of people. I mean, a number of people did. Reality was. And uh, so A&D testing, the focus on zero, uh, the focus on some leaders that might think it's more about blame as opposed to seeking to understand why the incident happened. I think all of those have robbed uh, conversations to talk about not having injuries. So that's the downside. When all this gets gets talked about are the ones that you have to report. Like you can't hide a broken leg and you can't hide 10 stitches. So and I'm not suggesting uh, everybody's hiding things. But it, if you look at most of the injuries, they seem to come out of the blue. 
And certainly uh, there's not a lot of low-level injuries get talked about like they used to. And I think that's another aspect, an unintended consequence of culture. A lot of people felt they were punished for reporting some of the, the lower things. So anyway, it's uh, kind of my spin on uh, maybe a little bit of an intro in terms of where I think the culture might be, but also uh, where the where a number of organizations might be on, on, on the road to zero. Missing conversations around what are we focused on today? Like what are the controls? What are the behaviors that we have to do? to protect the zero as opposed to just coming in tomorrow morning and high five and Hey, we did another day because if you're doing that, we're really just relying on luck, I believe. So a couple of thoughts there. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Steven, your thoughts. You've been in an organization that, uh, you know, that has one of those uh, journey, uh, journey goals. Right. So, so that's an interesting point actually is, is around that journey. So, you know, in in Jacobs, the journey started with Texas City uh, and the explosion uh, and fatalities we sustained there. Uh, at that time, uh, there was an identification, uh, you know, through through the evaluation of that incident, uh, that the culture was not there. Uh, they decided uh, as a group that they would go outside the company. Uh, to look for support, uh, to, uh, affect a culture change within the whole company, including leadership. Uh, you know, that was really gauged upon, you know, Mike had mentioned the culture of caring. So that was gauged towards, uh, the idea of caring for each other as individuals, not just from a worksite perspective, but also from a home. Uh, and family perspective and, and taking it with you, uh, and spreading that kind of culture, you know, th- throughout your family as well. Uh, and so that was an effective program for a lot of years. Uh, I can tell you that over the years, the stats, so, so the new company, uh, you know, that, that acquired us, uh, basically, uh, has a culture, but it's not, similar to the Jacobs culture that they did have. Uh, it's not wrong. It's just different. Uh, so when we, when we look at some of that, uh, and, and I, again, I look at from, from our own company, uh, over yearly stats. In fact, this morning I was just looking at our stats for fiscal year 2022, uh, not just around assurance and, and safety, but from a company perspective. Uh, we seem to, you know, and, and this has been talked about actually for quite a few years is, you know, we got to a point where I can remember being on sites and I won't mention the sites, but I was involved in a site where there was five fatalities in one year. Uh, basically, uh, you know, affecting a lot of people and affected me from a mental standpoint, uh, in a big way. Uh, and basically I, I did leave the site and, and I can tell you that a lot of it was around culture, uh, and, and what transpired. It looks to me today that we've kind of flatlined. Uh, we've gotten, you know, we haven't gotten rid of them a hundred percent because we know what's been happening up north right now, uh, around the fatalities. Uh, and it looks to me like there's a cult, culture and shift change underway. Uh, up there right now that's being proposed around human performance uh, and exactly what we're talking about today around culture. Uh, 
I can recall that there was also that same initiative uh, when I left there after the five fatalities. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, the one thing is, is do we really, you know, do we really all believe it and do we really all want to make it happen? I think at at, at times you need to look at it. I I don't think, you know, so we basically flatlined, and I've seen that over the years, uh, that uh, we, we still have incidents. Uh, we've gotten rid of the major incidents for the most part around critical work. Uh, a lot of it revolves around the smaller, uh, incidental kind of daily activities that in some terms become monotonous, uh, and repetitive. Uh, and then there's also, uh, a look at, you know, some basic things like walking. Uh, has, has become certainly, uh, prevalent in our industry as well as a lot of slips, trips, falls, uh, and a lot of stuff around hand injuries, uh, is, is what I see from today. Uh, I think we've taken steps forward at times and I also think we've taken steps back, backwards and, and I'll specifically point around, uh, you know, the economic realities uh, over the last few years and how it affected, uh, from, a, from a contractor's perspective, our ability to manage, uh, the projects and in turn manage the culture and safety of our folks. Uh, you know, very difficult, uh, to track, uh, you know, to look at leading indicators when, when basically, you know, over the years we've been asked to reduce uh, the indirect content, uh, uh, of our, of our, uh, organizations, uh, as a cost saving measure. And, and so that again, to me, when we speak about where we are, or where the culture is, the culture shifts sometimes due to the economy. Uh, and it's really driven a lot of times by the owners, uh, on, on how that shifts. And then it affects our ability, uh, to manage leading indicators to do those sorts of things. Uh, that keep the program, uh, uh, you know, robust, uh, and relevant. Uh, so to me, that's kind of where we are today. I, I think, uh, the other thing that I see a lot is that there's a lot of competing values, uh, inside of that. When you talk about values, you know, where there, there are values around, uh, Equity, sustainability, uh, safety, uh, you know, so there's a lot of competing, uh, values and cultures that we're, we're, we're trying to portray today. And, and sometimes that becomes overwhelming as well. Uh, and it, to me at times, maybe, you know, softens our approach, uh, at times. Uh, so that's kind of where, where I think we are today. I think there's still a lot of folks, uh, that, uh, you know, basically are having difficulties coming out of COVID and re-engaging, uh, what we know was our values pre-COVID. I think there needs to be, uh, an extra effort by all leaders and managers to probably over-communicate and over-emphasize and increase their visibility 
uh, because of the changes that have happened, because these changes of how we all work over the last two years have been massive. And um, I think it, 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 I think the engagement with everyone, I think is key. Right. And so when you look at engagement, that it's a perfect topic because it's something that I've been looking at uh, over this turnaround season uh, is we've lost the engagement from a, from a site uh, let, let's talk about even just a site safety meeting. Uh, there are still a lot of places right now that we do not have a site safety meeting and we're basically delivering the messages at the toolbox talks through the four person. Right. And, and, and that could be a hit or miss situation. Yeah. I've had, I've had client situations where I've had crews on turnarounds and on projects. I simply wanted to go out and, and be part of the safety meeting. And in order to do that, the client had, you know, required me to go through three days worth of their site-specific training to be on site for two hours. And I thought, what a, what a massive obstacle to creating engagement that there should be better ways to allow leadership to engage because we don't, you know, as contractors, and you're the same as me, Steve, one as a prime, one as a sub. But we don't live on one site, at least us from a leadership standpoint. We, we might have 20 different sites that we need to visit. We certainly can't maintain as leaders 60 days worth of orientations every year, right? And I, th- I thought that was an interesting – and that was really, really poignant during, during COVID that you could not get anywhere. But, but some of those rules, bureaucracies, whatever that are put in place, uh, I, I think create some barriers to engagement for sure. Right. For, for myself, I, I had the ability, uh, and because of my responsibilities, I, I did actually travel to all our turnarounds. I, I make it to every turnaround that we do every year, uh, for at least, uh, three, four days and, and, and try to support the team from a, from a safety perspective as well as yeah. just a, a site support perspective. Uh, I also, you know, think that that's where we need to shift the culture back. Uh, it's one thing that I'll never forget is the time that our Jacobs executive leadership took uh, to come to our sites uh, and uh, affect culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can remember one incident uh, of uh, I used to have a mentor assigned to me in, in Jacobs, and that was a, a gentleman named Phil Stasi. Uh, who would come and see me, uh, at least twice a year. Uh, and he was located in Pasadena and, uh, he had come up to a turnaround, uh, and basically, uh, engaged our craft in a, uh, in a safety meeting discussion, uh, and was a, you know, was a very well-spoken communicator, uh, and, Basically, he had encouraged everyone to stop the work if it wasn't safe. And what he had told them was, if someone asks you why you stopped the work, tell them that Phil said I could. (laughs) And I can tell you that when people left that meeting, they basically put stickers on their hard hats that said Phil said I could. And, and that, to me, again, is the effect of leadership in culture. Uh, 
you know, especially when it comes from a sincere uh, and honest perspective, right? So that that's where I think we are today. I think, uh, you know, we are, are still, uh, you know, finding ways. Some, some of it I look at and, you know, I, I look at some of the incidents and I say that we don't have the culture on that site right now. Because, because of the way this went down and, and how do we affect change of that culture? Uh, it, it comes in many different ways, but it starts with us as leaders, uh, really engaging folks in a meaningful way. Tyler, from a frontline perspective, we heard, you know, talking about results and journeys and culture. What, you know, give me your yeah. point of view. Yeah, so I, my first uh, experience in in the industry came, uh, I guess, probably mid to late 2000s. So um, I think at that point there had already been a, a start of a cultural shift towards the the zero injury goal. Um, I, it's it's funny because there's kind of you know when I came into industry there's a, a tale of two stories. There was you know kind of the young guns who were being brought up and and trained and explained what what zero injury. What, what the premise of it all was. And then, you know, there's the old boys club who was a little bit more resistance to change, which is understandable. You know, that's human nature. Um, but it, it kind of left this, this, uh, line in the sand when I, I was first coming in. And, and then, uh, you know, it was uh, interesting to see the blend from mentors to mentees. Um, and it went both ways. You know, sometimes the young guys were picking up bad habits from, you know, from the old dogs, uh, imparting their experience and, and uh and vice versa you know sometimes um you know that the habits of the young guy and and uh the the prompt of you know being told to put your gloves on or your glasses on 15 times by by a, a kid who's who's been in industry for two months you know as frustrating as frustrating as that may be um you know i i think that was the the first shift in the culture that that i began to see and uh you know it's definitely advanced uh, both culturally, uh, through technology, um, through different uh, types of controls, whether, you know, engineering, administrative, PP, whatever it may be. Um, and, and just making safety, uh, you know, it's an industry sta- standard now that uh, that everybody has a policy around safety. And it, it's usually, um, you know, one of the, the top selling features for, for any site or any company. Um, so I think just having it as forefront as it is, is helpful in, in shifting that culture, but uh, even more so, I think uh, maybe over the last uh, say seven to ten years, um, the the hazard ID and, and uh, behavior based observation programs I think have been super beneficial to uh, to again just get that engagement from the frontline craft. You know, um, us four individuals, we, we can't be on site 365 days with our crews, and, and you know, the larger your company is, uh, you know, to Stephen's point, the more difficult that can be. Um, you know, it's very commendable to try and get there as, as often as possible. But uh, some of these tools can be utilized so uniquely in, uh, in not only trending, um, but also shifting focus of, of uh, an individual. You know, if, if they're continually inundated with, uh, you know, uh, issues of drops uh, across the country or, or even across industry uh, nationally or internationally, sorry, um, you know, it just it just really does uh, it shifts the focus of um, you know straight production and, and task at hand to that that little bird on the the corner of your shoulder that's just chirping at you every so often to hey think about this here's a reminder of this um, 
but I think the biggest uh, key from from the leadership side of things to continue this growing is uh, is closing loops and 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 direct engagement. Um, you know, I, I think something that's seen far too often and, and you know grumblings from the front line is you know I have to fill out these documents every single day and you know it's a, a pain in my butt and you know it's, it's just a waste of time. I'm not getting any benefits out of it. I you know I, I don't know where these are going. Is anybody even looking at these? So I think um, that's that's kind of a a mental uh, a thing that I've made for myself is to ensure that that uh, when guys are using these tools that they are they feel like they're being heard uh, and and they are um, you know I think uh, uh, Mike made a, an earlier point about uh, the underreporting and, and reporting incidents being seen as negative um, you know I, I think that's another cultural shift that's continually progressing and uh, it, it depends on the culture and the site. But, uh, you know, it's got to be a shift from uh, placing blame of, you know, why did you do this or why did you not do this? You know, acts or omissions um, and shift that towards learning. Uh, you know, that's the key is people are going to make mistakes. There's, you know, it's, it's again, you know, it's a, a human quality. Um, no matter how prepared we are, no matter how experienced we are, there's there's always the, the, the uh, tendency to, to error. Um, so instead of, you know, dragging a guy through the coals and, and, uh, making it a, a negative, um, consequence, uh, take learnings and share the learnings and turn it into a positive, um, you know, a, a reinforcement. Um, and I, I think that's the way you need to tailor your culture. Uh, every site is going to be different. Every crew is going to be different. Every company is going to be different. So you really have to learn how to tailor um, you know, what works for your guys to reach that, that, uh, that zero goal. Um, you know, I, I think that's where we all want to be at. And, and like I said, um, certainly in, in my career tenure, I've seen leaps and strides from where it was. And, you know, I, I was never exposed to, to body belts or, or static lanyards or anything along those lines. But, um, what I'm I'm really starting to to like is uh, a lot of our frontline guys are are bringing up new innovations and better ways to to complete some of their tasks. So it's it's not necessarily just a you know management pushing it down to the craft. It, it's got to be a two way street, I think. And you know if if uh, if if we don't have the opportunity to have hands on tools and and complete the tasks at hand um, ourselves, uh, that that uh, that input can be vital. For you know, improving and and continually getting closer and closer to that zero incident culture. Um, and, and beyond that, uh, you know, trying to develop the culture within craft to craft. I think that's uh, one of the the more difficult things to to try and progress. Is um, you know, you can you can explain all you want in meetings and and in documentation, but it really has to be a buy-in from individual to individual. And once you start seeing that, it just kind of spreads like wildfire. Um, you know, you get one guy on board and, uh, you know, it's it's no longer seen as, as uncool to wear that piece of equipment or to take that extra step. You know, it, it just becomes habit and routine and uh, and that's where it, it develops from there. So um, I guess in summary, we're, we're, we're close to zero injury, I think. Um, I, I, you know, again, to Mike's point, I think there is, is still some um, – some underreporting and, and burying of, of some of the near misses and, and that sort of thing. I think there's still tons of room for improvement, but, uh, but I think as time progresses, um, we're, we're getting closer. So the goal is, is not unachievable, 
Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, making sure we're taking the right steps and, and doing the due diligence to ensure that our people are, are set up for success as opposed to just writing something out, putting it out into the world and, and hoping for the best. You know, it, it takes a little bit more legwork. Awesome. Thanks, Tyler. I'm going to double back to what Mike said about, you know, the zero. And if our client, you know, all of our clients are lot, and all of us often will write, you know, how many days since an injury. And, you know, what, what that is, you know, as Mike pointed out, it's a lagging indicator. Well, I, I, I'm not that smart, by the way. So I have lots of coaches who kind of give me their insight. And I spend a lot of time on this. I've got a coach in New York, business coach. His name is Keith Rosen. And Keith says, you cannot manage a result. You can only measure it, but you can manage behaviors that create results. And it was through that coaching that I got from him a long time ago that our cultural value that I wear on my shirt today, which is behaviors matter most, they create results. And management can, can, can report and measure results. The craft, they don't get anything out of that. But if you are recognizing and rewarding their behaviors and measuring their behaviors and recognizing that, you can start the process of engagement. From a from a perfection standpoint, Mike, you mentioned about, you know, do we ever reach zero or is it a journey? I've got another coach. His name is Dan Sullivan. And he says that perfection is trying to reach the horizon. That you can walk for days, but the horizon keeps moving. The only way you can measure progress is if you stop for a minute and you look back and you measure from where you came. And so I think that's a, you know, he's got a book called The Gap and the Gain, and it's about measuring progress based on where you came from, not where you're going, because the horizon will always move. And and to the point of Mike's point about underreporting, like I spend every day, as you know, Tyler, talking about safety and culture and how we're going to continually improve how we do things. And just two weeks ago, one of our younger managers called our operations leader and myself and said, hey, we just had a first aid. And I'm afraid if I report it to the client, we're going to lose our contract. What should I do? I said, you report it. You report it right now. Thank you for reporting it to us. And, you know, we didn't treat him like, you know, he was being ostracized. We just needed to give him coaching, saying, no, no, forge ahead, go to the client, report it. It's a first aid. We report everything. We believe in transparency. And, you know, if if for some reason we have a client who doesn't value that, I don't want them as a client. Like, I really don't. Like I want clients who have a you know have a belief system and a strong safety culture at all levels, and you know that's what we look for. One of the three attributes that we look for for our clients, and it's defined, and we talk about it all the time, is we want clients that have a strong safety culture that at all levels of the organization, they their values and beliefs are are show up in behaviors. So, you know, even even when you are at it every day, some. You know, and to Steve's point around Phil coming and reinforcing what a foreman might be telling them, um, you know, even in, in even to this day, we need to reinforce things to young managers and young supervisors so that they feel comfortable with doing what is uncomfortable. Because reporting an incident is never comfortable because they may, as you know, in their in their tenure, view it as their own personal failure or some risk of their contract or something like that. And we need to just be resolute that we are going to be reporting and encouraging reporting of all incidents so that, so that you don't have six months down the line, a rash of three injuries 
when you didn't even have a you know a near miss for the last six months. That's and I think that's that that's one of the things that's so important is the continual education and uh, you know especially when things are going well, just reiterating how important the steps that are being taken are, are um, producing the results because it can be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's lots of great work on this around the leading and lagging indicators. There's a lot of people smarter than me who've written written lots of great work on this. John Dewar wrote a book on it. There's a book on you know called 40X by uh, by Sean Covey. It was a great read on thinking about leading and lagging indicators. But the moral of the story in all of those is you can't you can't manage a result. You have to manage and lead and encourage the behaviors that create results. Every one of them are consistent in that. And I, and I think that that's, that kind of leads to the next part where, you know, our industry, I, I, I remember the shift when we all started to, in some way or form, um, implement some versions or some interpretation of behavior-based safety. But when I talk to Kraft and when I, even when I write about it and I get feedback on social media, it's all over the place how, how frontline craft perceive what behavior-based safety is all about because they think it's about filling out a card. What is it, Mike? What is behavior-based safety all about? Well, I don't know if I can give you the textbook example, but uh, just to kind of pivot off something that all three of you said there, you all, every one of you has mentioned the word reinforcement several times, and you mentioned behavior several times, which uh, – says a lot of progress in the industry is, is, is continuing. In terms of uh, behavioral-based safety, and I'm, I'm a big fan of behavioral-based safety, and I'll say uh, full disclosure, I never uh, got to really work it and understand it too well, touched it from the periphery. Um, you mentioned the tradespeople not liking the cards. Uh, virtually every level of leadership I worked with didn't like behavioral-based safety and thought it was really stupid and bureaucratic. And I would say uh, that's because they didn't understand the science. They didn't understand the behavioral science, what it was rooted in, and, um, you know, Stephen mentioned uh, human performance, PhDs on both sides of the equations these days in terms of what is the silver bullet. And the reality is there is no silver bullet. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, it is all about reinforcement. It's about observing people, setting people up for success. Uh, where I was starting to say, I don't know the textbook example of behavior, uh, behavioral-based safety, but uh, I'm also a big fan of behavioral-based leadership which isn't a whole lot different. But uh, I would offer up that behavioral-based safety is uh, probably the intersection of uh, humans and science and technology and uh, where they all come together to, uh, to do things the right way. And certainly uh, a, a big, uh, you know, one of the, one of the, the planks in uh, behavioral-based safety is observing people. And it's certainly uh, not, not, not to say they're a terrible craft person or a terrible human being, but it's the, it, it's kind of predicated on the belief that there can only be one best way to do something, and somebody else has probably shed some blood somewhere over the years. So here's the prescribed way to do it. It's no different. Like here's Granny's uh, recipe to bake the cake kind of thing. And and when they're being observed, they're just being observed and how they're doing following Granny's recipe. And and that's where the feedback should stay at. The feedback should stay at how they do relative to what the task was prescribed, not for people to uh, interject their own opinion on how good or bad a millwright or a watermaker they are or what they did or didn't do. And that's where that's where a lot of people have had bad experiences with the, the observation component of behavioral-based safety. But certainly the uh, you can't argue the science. It's indisputable in terms of uh, people get a heads up. They know they're going to be observed. It, it, it prompts them to go 
dig out the recipe card, what's the right way to do it. And uh, behavioral scientists would also say that uh, after you've watched and observed somebody doing a task for, you know, some people say nine minutes, some will say 13 minutes, or people will revert back to whatever, uh, I think might, you might have mentioned before, Don, or somebody did that. Uh, it, it's what people do when, uh, when nobody else is present. And they forget you're there. So it's an opportunity to give them feedback after. And it's also an opportunity for the observer to get some feedback from another colleague that went with them, depending on the model that they use. But uh, what it does provide you, and this is where the bureaucracy takes over, you end up with uh, a paper-driven exercise. You, you end up with, in big organizations, as many as seven levels of leadership. They're only worried about the paper flow into the right box and how many pieces of paper got turned in. And virtually uh, nobody has, an, has that intellectual or technical understanding of what behavioral safety is. Other than the good, uh, the good safety gal or good safety guy that's out there uh, getting beaten, whipped on to go make it happen and make the paper flow. Unfortunately, that's where some of it goes. So I think the, the science gets lost on it. But I'm a, I'm a big fan of it when it's when it's done right. Thanks, Mike. Stephen. Yeah, I think uh, the behavioral based side of things. Uh, for me, I'm, you know, and I've seen it over the years, so I've been through a lot of, uh, iterative changes, you know, processes within our safety systems and behavioral based. And now it's, uh, the worldly way, uh, which is, you know, very common to, to a behavioral program. I think, uh, you know, to me, the program is designed to encourage people to do the right things when you're not watching them. Uh, and I think that's what we kind of lead towards. Uh, then there's all the paperwork that, that Mike talked about that, that uh, drives the processes. And, you know, our lack of really investing in uh, what a lot of times what, what that's telling us. Uh, I, you know, I think when we're looking at that, you know, there's differences in the long-term employee and the short-term employee. And I think, you know, inside of the dynamics of that, we need to understand both processes uh, and and sometimes look at hybrid models uh, that encourage a behavioral-based safety program, but also, uh, you know, there's an accountability I think that sometimes we miss upon uh, around the process. And I know that, you know, w we want learnings uh, and we want, uh, you know, to progress and make the people feel comfortable talking about uh, these things. But I think inside of that behavioral-based safety, there's also an accountability that's also a behavior uh, that sometimes we miss upon. Uh, and we don't take advantage of uh, because of perception uh, and, and maybe how we think it's going to affect culture. So to me, you know, I'm a proponent of, uh, of the behavioral-based safety concepts. Uh, I think that uh, when we look at application, uh, a lot of times we need to look at uh, complexity, magnitude, uh, whether it's short or long-term service folks. Uh, I think it works a lot better in the maintenance world than it does in the turnaround world at times. Uh, 
and it, it's something again that I think is a is a tricky uh, you know stance to take. That that if you're thinking about you know going 100% behavior based safety, I think there's also that discipline and accountability. Uh, and you know, I'll be honest with you, we can only learn so much about someone falling on a piece of ice. There, there, there's only so much to learn about that. The ice was there. You tripped on it. Uh, you made a decision to walk on it. Whatever those decisions are in behind that is one thing, but there really is not a lot of learnings other than we didn't eliminate the hazard and we accepted the hazard and we moved on past that. Uh, and I see repetitive issues, uh, pop up in those ways and we go, you know, we've got a great culture here and, 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 you know, we, we've got lots of participation and, and really from a leadership perspective, you start to think about the accountability of some of those things. And so I think there's a balance. I don't think that we should shy away from holding people accountable. Uh, and, and I think there's tendencies at times to look at doing that. Uh, because of, again, the culture that we live in today and the way the culture is moving today, uh, from a society perspective. And, and so we want to engage a lot of that. Uh, but there still is, uh, you know, uh, a look at, at both sides of that, that process, right? I'm going to comment on a couple of things you said after I hear from Tyler, because there's a couple of really insightful things you said that I, I'd like to at least give you my perspective on. Tyler, what about yourself? Absolutely. BBO yeah, and behavior-based, behavior-based safety in general. Yeah, so I think there's always been a, a lot of mixed uh, feelings um, since these programs began to be uh, rolled out. You know, I, I think the, the number one from uh, a craft standpoint is the, the idea of the rat card. Uh, now I think we've, we've evolved to some extent from, you know, tattling on this guy for doing this to, to understanding more of the conceptual side of things of, of the trending and, and the ability to see hazards and events before they actually occur. You know, again, uh, referencing back to that pyramid model. Um, you know, from a, an investment side of things, I, I think the programs can be quite cumbersome. Uh, there is a lot of administrative work that uh, that's required and, and of course, a, a dollar figure that accompanies. Um, and, and I think where most companies are, are falling down is a, a lack of training uh, of, of the frontline guys, of, of what the program's supposed to be, how to participate in the program, what kind of quality you're looking at. I think there's a, always been a significant focus, and, and I think, you know, Don, I think we're still guilty of it to some extent uh, in our own house of quality versus quantity, you know. Um, you need quantity for, this, for the sake of getting guys into their routine and habits, but then it becomes a matter of trying to coach individuals um, into, you know, what, what you're looking for, what you're trying to trend as opposed to, you know, Bob's shoes were untied again or, you know, whatever the case may be. Now, on, on the flip side of things, um, I, I think there's a, a couple of significant positives that I have personally recognized from uh, implementing uh, behavior-based programs. Um, number one, probably first and foremost, is guys in field uh, are constantly in, inundated with stimuli, whether that's, you know, procedures, rules, noise, congestion, whatever the case may be. Um, I think that, you know, once you get somebody to buy into a program, it, it kind of removes the, 
the behavior of, you know, the head down task in front of you, it, it shifts your focus and you start looking at your surroundings and individuals that are, are, you know, in your area. And it, it just kind of, it opens your awareness to, to your surroundings and, and to what might be going on. Um, secondarily, uh, and, and probably the, the most paramount thing is, uh, it's frontline owned, you know, so it, as much as management can still track and trend, um, realistically, in my opinion, the idea is to have frontline craft own their own and their neighbors, uh, behaviors and, and hazards. So, you know, I, I think the, the old adage of you see it, you own it is, it's probably been uh, beaten up a little excessively, but it, it's true. Um, you know, it, it negates Don's uh, story earlier where, you know, the white hats come out of the trailer and all the behaviors change. Well, now it's not necessarily a white hat. Maybe it's, you know, the scaffolder that's working a deck below you or it's the, you know, machinist that's 20 feet away. Somebody is always kind of, you know, Im- implementing the idea of a brother's keeper. There's always eyes watching. There's always some kind of trending occurring. And uh, from that trending, you know, that's that's where we shift our focus to whatever the the paramount issue or concern is of, of that day, that week, that month, whatever timeline, uh, you know, that is, is put forth, you know, to, to Stephen's point, uh, the ice. Yeah, you're right. There's only so much you can learn about about a guy slipping on ice and, you know, the, the behavioral decisions that uh, that were made. But if you're getting, um, you know, observations of. Know, a half dozen people that have taken this this goat trail and it's an icy goat trail. Well, now you can mitigate it. You can set up a barrier. You can salt. You know, so they're, depending on you know how the company is using the program and and the, the information and statistics and, and the data that uh, that accompanies. Um, you know, you're right. There's only so much you can learn, but there is still something you can do about it. Um, and, and you know, to further uh, another of your points there, Stephen. Uh, Tenure seems to be a, a major thing. You know, if it's, uh, I've, I've done a handful of turnarounds myself and I find that, uh, there's less, um, we'll say pride in ownership. You know, guys know they're there for, you know, four or five weeks and then they're on to the next. So they're not really buying into what's being offered as far as culture and, and the behavior based program. They, they're, they're just, you know, filling out cards or, or, you know, informing supervision for the, the sake of a checkbox as opposed to really getting into the meat and potatoes of what the program is supposed to be and, and how to alter behaviors through said program. Awesome, Tyler. Thank you. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to geek out for a little bit because I know the psychology of this stuff. Um, so here's what behavior based safety is from a science standpoint. It's based on a psychological concept called antecedent behavioral consequence. And um, I've got a, uh, I've got another friend and coach and he's a, he's a partner in, uh, in working on some safety and behavior workshop. His name is Dr. BJ Fogg and he's the behavioral design lead for the lab, the the behavioral lab at Stanford university. And uh, you know, and, and BJ says and I think, and I think we all experience this is that all in 85 to 90% of all the things that we do every day are automatic behaviors. They're automatic actions. We don't even think about it. Think about how you drove to work this morning. Did you remember getting in the vehicle, backing up? Do you remember every turn? Half the time we go through life and we do a lot of things that are automatic. Behavior based observation at its core psychological point of view is to have an outside person observe 
the workers so they can see something that is invisible to them because they're doing it automatically. That could be a good habit, could be a bad habit, but it's a blind habit because it's automatic. And the point of the observer is to say, hey, I know, you know, you did this great, you did this great, you did this great. I don't know if you know, notice that every time you go to read that dial gauge, you take your glasses off. Did you notice that? And and then he says, yeah, I have to because, you know, the foam inserts fog up or whatever. And then you can do something about it. But 99% of those behaviors that are at-risk behaviors are automatic behaviors that are blind to the person who is doing it because it's become a repetitive automatic habit. At its core level, if we could get everyone who does behavior-based observations, the frontline craft, to understand what your job is, is it's to make the invisible visible, we could make a big improvement. What I think a lot of our people feel is, I've, I've got to do an observation that's a piece of paper, and then what is going to happen with it? I was fortunate totally you know, separate from my study in behavior design with Dr. Fogg. In 2004, I had a great leader I worked for at the time. His name was Ken Tolan, and he rolled out behavior-based safety. And every single one of us went through a two-day workshop on how what behavior-based safety was all about and how, as an observer and an observee, I should behave in that, what I'm supposed to be doing. It wasn't about the card. It was about the interaction. And learning that my job is, as Tyler put it, to be my brother's keeper. But but the point of it is for me to see what Tyler is doing, because I know Tyler is doing it automatically and he can't see it. But if I bring it to the forefront, now, 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 now he can be aware of it. We drive awareness and he can change that behavior. I mean, that's, you know, if, if all we did in behavior-based safety was train people better and what they're trying to do from a peer-to-peer point of view, I think we would we would go miles in terms of improving performance. Now, from a from an insight standpoint, like what do you do when you got a thousand observations? You know, how can we create some actionable insight for people to, you know, barrier that icy path, you know, before someone falls? And I think that's the biggest challenge because when I talk to superintendents and construction manager friends of mine, there you got 500 people on site. They know everyone's supposed to do an observation. They got 200 cards back, and but they don't know they don't know who participated and who didn't participate, and they don't have time to dig into the 200 to find out where the insight is about where there's a trend in a risk to to find those six observations where people almost had a slip and a trip so they could issue grips or whatever. And I think that that I think the part of that that is key is the difference between an organic culture and an intentional culture. And I think to Steve's point about new employees versus long-term employees, you know, inside of culture design, one of the biggest things about being intentional is just defining what those behaviors are and then having your long-term people who are, who are sort of indentured into your intention around your culture to work closely with the newbies and say, Hey, that's not how we do things here. Here's how we do things. And I think that that's, that's got to be key if you're going to have – because here's an interesting thing about hum, humanity and civilization. We either have an intentional culture that leadership defines or we have an organic culture that just happens because humans are cultural people. And so if we don't create an intentional culture, you're going to get an organic culture that happens unintentionally that we can't 
we can't direct and guide. I think that's a really important part. But if you know, I think if 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 we wanted to get tremendous value, one simple thing out of behavior-based safety is train everyone in how to do an observation and what the point is, regardless of the bloody card, regardless of the piece of paper. Because the piece of paper isn't for the men. The piece of paper is for someone in management like us to do something with it. But if, if from a peer-to-peer standpoint, if we just teach all of our people, what we're trying to do is to make the invisible visible so that you can protect, you know, be your brother's keeper and do and, and really help them understand that it's not about ratting people out and it's not about filling out a piece of paper. It's about helping your peer spot an at-risk behavior that he probably isn't even aware of. I think that can be a really powerful shift. Uh, we don't have a lot more time left, folks. So, because we've we've dove deep into the details, there's still about eight different parts of the conversation that I wanted to have. Uh, maybe we will uh, we will have another session and dive into some more of those details on another session. But um, before I we take uh, any questions from from uh, the few people who are still attending, I, I'd like to just go around and ask each of you what's one thing one big recommendation that you have to the you know our industry if there's one thing we could do that you think would impact uh keeping our people safe what would it be mike well it's great uh great question um you know one of today's uh probably foremost thought leaders, uh, one of the highest viewed guys on the internet right now is uh, Simon Sinek. And Simon Sinek talks quite frequently around, uh, you know, he's, he's got a slogan around that a leader is uh, responsible for the people in their charge as opposed to in charge of people. And uh, you talk about the brother's keeper, but there's also an aspect of leadership in terms of uh, leaders. And, and if, you, if, if you thought through anything that we've talked about in the last hour and a half around culture and behaviors and people knowing what's, what they're supposed to do, if, if every leader uh, you know, if their job description could be distilled down into two or three bullets, I know it's, the world's a lot more complex. But if it was as simple as uh, my only reason for existing is to make my people successful and to make them successful, I'm going to make sure I can pinpoint all the expectations. Like what does what good look like for them? And knowing that, I'm going to give them feedback on how they're doing and they're going to get real timely feedback. And that that would kind of go in concert with uh, your point on the uh, – on the uh, brother's keeper part. And, you know, you, you mentioned the ABCs and the antecedents, the behaviors and consequences, and certainly uh, that's what it's all about. And just kind of to pivot back to, you know, Steve talked about the uh, the ice cleats or people fall on the ice. And that's the classic. That's the classic where all the adults, like they've heard, exaggerate, but they, they, the adults that are over 40 in that industry have heard a gazillion times, you got to wear your ice cleats or use a designated walkways. And that's just repeating the antecedents over and over again. And if you kind of get back to, uh, there's a formal behavioral base, the BBOs and the LPOs and whatnot, but there's also a lot of missed opportunities where uh, where leaders can be, uh, you know, can be shaping and molding the behaviors before it happens kind of thing. And if you think right now, I know for a fact, at least two of the major sites on October 1st put out the edict that uh, everybody must have ice pleats in their in their uh, possession, right? And to Steve's point, you can't learn nothing uh, once the once the person's already on the way to Northern Lights, they broke their leg. It, it happened kind of thing. But if you just think uh, right now in that region, there's probably eight or 10,000 people that there's been an expectation that they have ice cleats in their possession right now as we sit here. And you can kind of predict because it happened uh, three or four times over the last 10 years when uh, when two or three people break their leg uh, before Christmas. There's a major global stand down across the site and 4,000 people will get to go sit in the tent and 
watch that movie again where somebody comes in and talks about wearing ice cleats and, and walkways. So that's clearly the, the lagging indicator and people reacting to it. But the, the, the point of influence for leaders right now, and this would be a challenge for all of us to shape and mold those behaviors we talk about to reinforce how to, how to stay safe on the, what are some of the controls? And you can kind of, this rhetorical question, but just think of the, of the 10,000 people that supposedly are supposed to have ice cleats in their possession right now within half an hour of that region, how many people have been positively reinforced and thanked in the last week for having those ice cleats? And that kind of gets back to your point on the reinforcement and shaping the behaviors so that that's the consequence. The con- they're going to feel love and joy from someone recognized that they got their ice cleats with them. And if that can be reinforced over the next three or four weeks, by the time it actually need them, a whole a big shift has been made in the culture. And, and to your point on the, uh, uh, how do you shape the culture? You, sh- you shape it through the behaviors because that's, as, as you said, that's the behaviors, what people say or do. And that's what, that's what's really cool about behavior based and leadership behavior based is that, uh, if, if, if we all believe that we can observe the behavior, then we can give people feedback on it. And if we can observe it, then we can count it and we can shape it. And if we can change the behavior, then we're changing the culture. So that brings together a lot. Awesome. Awesome points, Mike. And in all, all things that are simple, just leadership behaviors. Absolutely. Just, just do it. Like, like Mikey said, right? <laughs> Stephen, what about you? Where's, uh, what's your, uh, what's your best advice, my friend? I think, uh, you know, again, one, one thing that I've always found, uh, very effective is engagement of your clients. Uh, you know, I, I've been through that with a couple of clients where, where engagement, uh, from a cultural perspective and participation uh, has really changed uh, outcomes uh, on sites. And so to me, you know, one thing I would encourage folks to do is seek out allies within your client organizations uh, and have them come and participate uh, at a craft level uh and, and it seems to work quite well and it and it really starts to build that culture of people on the same path. Uh the second thing I, I think I would, would add into that is to make sure that it, it's what we talked about, that the programs that we are instituting behavioral based, uh whatever that is, are relative and meaningful and, and followed through upon because that's what we see a lot of times is is that we're gathering information and then we're having incidents come out the other end that are, you know, directly related to our leading indicators that we're trying to garner. And and that buys a lot of that culture uh, acceptance when you start to put that out there. Uh, and, and I think if we don't do that on a regular basis, uh, we start to get a program that basically is about checking a box uh, and not necessarily uh, about the true, you know, heartfelt feelings of wanting to to send everyone home safely. And so to me, those are the, the two things I think are important is make sure it's relevant and, and, and also make sure that you engage, uh, you know, allies within your client systems uh, to help you in this process. Love that. I love, I love the be on site and engage the workers. I think it's so important. Uh, I, I think, uh, I think workers, 
you know, not having to go through your foreman or general foreman to have relationships and reinforce things, I think is so important to create that, that, uh, you know, I think, I don't know if it was Simon Sinek or who said it, but sometimes you got to say something seven times before your people hear it once. Right. <clears throat> right. Uh, Tyler. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, my point is, is kind of a collective of, of the other two gentlemen. Um, you know, Don, you're well aware. To me, one of the, the biggest issues that stands with, with a lot of the programs that we have lim- implemented is the lag in time from reporting until when a feedback loop is closed with a frontline craft. So something innovators specifically is doing is we're trying to automate our entire system to provide instantaneous feedback. And then the next step of that is having the leadership own it and positively reinforce from the top down. Um, so then not only are you living in the now as opposed to living in the yesterday, but your leadership has accurate data and statistics to provide with the frontline craft. So they feel like they do have a voice. And again, you know, leadership is, is where culture starts. So once you start, uh, you know, pushing it down the lines, um, I think that's a, a very simplistic way. And the, the technology exists. We have the programs established. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, innovating and, and improving upon. So I think most companies are almost there, but as a, a quick, simple focus to, to evolve to the next step towards that zero is, uh, is just being more timely and, and having it, the, the message come from the leadership group. I love the fact that we've spent so much time with AI and automation just to give us insights so we can give that feedback fast back to our guys so we can see that there were six at risk, you know, conditions around, uh, slips on, on an icy patch and we can instantly pivot and say, Hey, get more ice cleats to that job and barrier that off before someone falls down. And the technology exists today to do that, but you know you got to think about how do you how do you take the information on a BBO and use it in a way that workers go, well, we all we've been reporting that for like three hours, and they're already telling us about it. It's in our focus out of tomorrow. It's in our toolbox talk tomorrow, and someone just got an extra three boxes of cleats out here because they saw what we told them. Imagine if we just did that. Uh, for me, guys, one thing I'm going to do, and it's totally based on my friends, what Steve Cathery said about Phil, I'm getting a sticker for my hard hat that says Steve said I could do it. <laughs> and every time we work for Worley, I'm going to I'm going to wear that, and make sure I have that sticker. Steve said I could. And uh, and hopefully uh, everyone will uh, will uh, know that uh, Steve and I are aligned on working safely. So uh, we don't have any more time left, but. If anyone in the audience wants to ask a question in the chat, if you could type it in right now, I'll uh, I'll pose it to the panel and we can see if we can get a couple of closing comments. Uh, Fred or Kelly or Thomas or Zach, any of you guys have any questions that you'd like to ask? And uh, we'll get one uh, one last question or two answered, but I'll only go to one panelist uh, and not not the entire group. I'll give you guys a, a moment to type that in if uh, if you have something that you want to ask. I'm not seeing anything come in. You guys were obviously brilliant because uh, you answered all of the, all other questions. Um, gentlemen, I don't know about you guys. I thought this was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, there's still a lot more um, that I, I'd love to talk about on other topics to dive into this. And uh, if you guys are open to having another session in a month or two or three, 
I'll, uh, I'll, I would definitely love to have you back and, and, and continue this conversation. If we can touch two people, 200 people or 2,000 people with something that we've said here today and we can stop someone from getting hurt, I think it's worthwhile. So um, cool. I'm, uh, I'm passionate, uh, over the moon passionate about this. And um, uh, I've just I've created a personal moonshot that says over the next 10 years, I'm going to help 5,000 companies not hurt anyone ever again. I don't know how I'm going to measure that but it drives my compass in terms of my actions. And, um, and I, I just, I really, really appreciate each and every one of you coming on here and, and adding value to this conversation because uh, we all got to speak up and we got to do it inside our organizations and we got to do it outside our organizations so that we can really try to facilitate change and improvement. Any final thoughts, guys? Michael? Uh, just, just quickly. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. It was great to uh, see Stephen and, uh, Learn from Tyler as well, and yourself, Don, uh, your passion to uh, touch so many people in the next 10 years. Uh, my final comment that stitched together, you know, we talked about feedback. Somebody mentioned timeliness. How do you get that information to people? And uh, just, just, I just like to remind people, there's a lot of people in our workspaces that are craving feedback. And uh, if you think of all the resources that uh, the folks that work for you are constrained, right? They never have enough workforce, never have enough days in the schedule, never have enough cranes, whatever. But feedback is the one thing that they're not constrained on. And, uh, you know, as quick as we can observe somebody do something and process it and then spit it back out, whatever that takes, we can deliver feedback to uh, positively reinforce something really cool or point out to somebody that there might be a safer way or what they're doing. And uh, uh, I like to keep myself honest on that by thinking through that uh, uh, buddy of mine uh, coined it. He said, you know, feedback is fast, it's free, and there's an endless supply. The only constraint is ourselves in doing that. So uh, thanks for the opportunity. Really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Stephen. Yeah, uh, just thanks for the opportunity. I think, uh, again, some really good conversations uh, around concepts and, and kind of where we're at today. Uh, it's timely for me because I, I'm certainly looking at, at a lot of this with inside our turnaround uh, group right now uh, in different ways. And so, uh I've learned a lot in, in chatting with you folks, which I, I knew I would from all our previous engagements. So uh, very appreciative of uh, being involved in this. And, and again, uh, I think uh, we've come a long ways. It, it, it's, it's really a matter now of how are we going to get to the end uh, of this and, and have folks calling on or we can ensure that people are going to go home safely every day and do the right things when we're not looking. So I, I think we're at the cusp of that. Uh, it's people on this call and, and other leaders that uh, that are driving this. Uh, it's a passion of mine for sure. Uh, and, and I hope we all continue on this path together. Thanks, Steve. Tyler. Yeah, I'm just uh, gracious to to be in you know in, on this call with with you individuals and and getting to learn um, you know from your past experiences and and having your knowledge imparted. Uh, I think that's really what drives uh, safety industry wide. You know uh, the culture um, of of just sharing and networking. Uh, you know I, I tend to find more value out of sitting down with individuals like yourselves for an hour and a half than I, I would in you know a week long. Um, course or, or anything along those lines. It just, to me, it's more a world, real world and applicable experience. So, um, I appreciate your guys' time and, and, and having me, uh, as part of this. You're the next generation who's got to drive the passion, my friend. 
Uh, for me, it's real simple, guys. This is a journey. It's progress, not perfection. Take a minute. Stop. Stop looking forward to zero. Start looking back on progress and take the next 100-meter dash to the next level of improving your game. And you'll one step at a time, you know, one person at a time, make sure everyone goes home safe. Everyone, thanks again. Really appreciate it. And uh, for uh, our listeners, uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, this will be uh, on our podcast and on our YouTube channel in the coming days so that uh, hopefully we'll be able to share this conversation with 200 or 2,000 more people. So, again, everyone, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate your input. Thanks, Don. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks, Don. Bye for now. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Bye now. Bye now.